This is Come and See by Father Ron Baird for April 10th, 2011. The Gospel is taken from the book of John, chapter 11, verses 1 through 45. We've come to the fifth week of Lent. We're almost through. Been wandering through the wilderness of our sin, of our brokenness, and we're close enough now that we're sort of on the last leg of the journey. We know the gates of Jerusalem are just a week off. So I want to stop and ask you, what have you learned about sin? Not your particular ones, but I mean, I mean, well, your particular ones to the extent, what are the characteristics? What, what have, the, have you discovered in looking at your own sin? What about them? What do they all have in common? They don't let up. They're controlling pride. Need to learn to forgive ourselves. Anybody here like me and they find they keep doing the same ones over and over again? I can't even be a very interesting sinner. I mean, it seems that real sin kind of possesses us, doesn't it? It it sort of takes over. Anything else? It's stronger than we are. (laughs) Yes, it's like an elephant. It has a great memory. It always seems to raise its head, too. You know, Seth, the minute you decide you're going to actually do something about it, it, it seems to get stronger. I'll tell you a, a funny story. Um, the first week of Lent, right after Ash Wednesday, uh, we were invited to someone's house uh, for a, a small dinner party. And a, as we went there, um, we were looking forward to it, and we got there, and they said it was a St. Patrick's Day theme. So I wore a green shirt. But I got there, and um, I had given up ice cream and red ice cream for Lent and red meat on Fridays. Well, we get there and they have, they said, we've got a great treat. We're having corned beef tonight <laughs> and we're having um, mint ice cream, green mint ice cream for dessert. And one of the things I learned about sin in that is how easy it is to rationalize it. Because I was thinking, well, you know, it'd be kind of rude to, you know, tell them I'm not eating that and I wouldn't want to insult anybody, right? I mean, I mean, it just seems to come and, and, and come in on you. It also, the other thing I discovered, I don't know if anybody else here discovered this, is that the further along Lent you go, if you're really looking at sin, at the sin of your life, the heavier it gets and the harder it gets because it's frustrating. I mean, because a lot of the things really aren't that big of a deal, you wouldn't think. You know, why is it that I have so much trouble with it? But we do, and and it becomes a burden. And we become parched, and we begin to see what the consequences are like. What are the consequences? Guilt. Ultimately, death, yeah, and death not only... Eternal death, although that can be be there, but also physical death and and even death in this life, death of relationships, death of careers, death of friendships, um, death of hopes and dreams. 
Um, and and we, we find that death becomes pervasive um, in our lives. And, and, and we struggle because we can't overcome it. We don't know what to do with that. Well, the scriptures today really speak to that. The Old Testament lesson has Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones, probably the Jezreel Valley, just um, down the hill from Megiddo, where Armageddon will be. And uh, Ezekiel is in a vision, and he's there, and he sees a whole valley. The reason why I say probably there is because they had more battles there than probably anywhere else in ancient times. And, and all that he sees across the whole field, it's, it, it's big, it's a big valley, is a bunch of bones, and they're dry. That means the carrion have already you know, picked everything clean. There's nothing there but bones. And God asks him a question, Mortal, can these bones live? And Ezekiel, proving that he was a good Anglican, says, well, you know, Lord, <laughs> smart man, turn it back around. I have no idea. I don't want to do the wrong answer to God, right? So, well, you know. <laughs> and he says, prophesy to the bones. Talk to the bones, mortal. Talk to the bones. Okay. So he talks to the bones, and lo and behold, you know, muscle comes on them and sinew and flesh, and they cover them up, but they're dead or in a doornail. And he says, prophesy to the breath is the way it's translated. The word is ruach. Ruach can mean spirit. It can mean breath. It can mean wind. Prophesy to the wind, mortal, and make breathe on these bones and make them live. And they do. It becomes a, a forerunner, a, 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 a metaphor, a sign, a prophecy of what is about to happen a few hundred years later in Jesus Christ. How he can make our lives, our bones live. Which then brings us to the story in today's gospel lesson of um, Lazarus. And what's the story about? Just off the top of your head. I mean, if you just hearing the story, what would you say it's about? It's about raising somebody from the dead, right? Seems pretty simple. That's really not all the story is about, oddly enough. Jesus, um, to set the scene, had been to Jerusalem a little bit before. He had uh, destroyed the uh, the temple. I mean, torn up all the money changers and done all that. And they tried to stone him to death and ran him out of town. So he's back and, and he gets a message from Mary and Martha. Now, do you remember Mary and Martha? Mary and Martha. Martha's the very practical one. She's the go-getter. She gets things done, you know, task-oriented. And Mary is, um, in Martha's mind, lazy um, because she just wants to sit at the feet of the Lord and soak up this knowledge that the Lord has to give. And Martha tries to get Jesus to make her do something about it. And Jesus says, well, she's chosen the better part. Well, these are the same people. They have a brother named Lazarus, and Jesus loves these people. And so they, they send him a message saying he's very ill. Now, I don't think they said that he has a cold. I mean, obviously, a very ill meant seriously very ill. And they were hoping he would come, obviously. And Jesus says, well, this is not, you know, going to lead to death. You know, this is so that the glory of God can be revealed. And the disciples go, well, okay. You know, and, and he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. And then he says to them, you know, after a couple of days, let's go 
to Judea, back to Bethany. Now, Bethany is just outside of Jerusalem, just a couple of miles. Now it's really kind of incorporated in it. And as they're going, they said, well, somebody brings up, well, Lord, um, the last time we were there, they tried to kill us, you remember? And are you sure you really want to go back there again? I mean, they, you know, we're not real popular <laughs> in that place. And Jesus answers them. He says, those who walk in darkness stumble. Aren't there 12 hours in a day? Now, you all would have gotten that, right? What was he talking about? It's weird, isn't it? Lord, they were just trying to kill you there. You know, are you sure you want to go back there? Aren't there 12 hours in a day? So one of the ways that you can always tell if God is talking to you is he likes to talk in non-sequiturs, or at least what seem to us to be non-sequiturs. They're not to him, by the way, um, but, but they seem like that to us, and you're, you go, huh? <laughs> what in the world does that mean? And so they don't even deal with it, which is what we would do, right? When somebody says something we don't get at all, we just sort of don't answer. And they said, well, Lord, if he's asleep, he'll wake up, <laughs> so it'll be good. No, you don't understand. He's dead. Now let's go. And Thomas, in, in a very um, prophetic kind of statement, says, and it's interesting that it's Thomas, because if you remember, Thomas is the one who wouldn't believe. Thomas says to him, um, or says to the others, let's go with him and die with him. How's that for a fatalistic attitude? <laughs> you know, we're all going back. It's done. I mean, they're going to kill us all. But he says, let's go back with us. And what's fascinating about it is that Where's Thomas after the arrest? Oh, he ran off, didn't he? What happened to, let's go die with him? I guess it seemed like a good idea when you're that far away. When he actually got there, it didn't seem like too good of an idea at all. And we're going to get back to what 12 hours in a day and darkness and lightning in a second. So Jesus goes, and he hasn't quite gotten there yet when message comes that the master's coming. And Martha, being Martha, jumps up and goes out to find him. I'm going to go get him now. We're going to take care of this problem. And so she, Mary doesn't do anything. She stays home. She goes running up to him, and the minute she gets to him, she says, Lord, if you had only been here, our brother would not have died. What was the point of that? Well, she will, but that's not what she meant. Why was she saying it? I mean, if, if you had done something, well, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. What's she trying to do? Being a good Jewish mother. She's putting a guilt, she's putting a guilt trip on him, I mean, or at least trying to. Doesn't work real well with Jesus. And so Jesus, you can sort of imagine, looks at her like, oh, Jesus. Um, and he says, Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha not being satisfied. Well, I know he's going to rise at the last day. I mean, you know, what good's that? I mean, you know, if you had been here before, he wouldn't be dead. So why, you know, why do we have to wait? And then she does something even more fast. She says, but even now I know that the Lord would do whatever you wanted. When you put a guilt trip on somebody, why do you do it? 
Yeah, get some leverage, right? Get them to move. Do the things you want them to do. Martha's accomplished with this, except that Jesus, you can't really manipulate very well. And he looks straight at Martha and he says, Martha, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Martha's looking at him and she's and he says, Do you believe this? Now that's an interesting question given that Lazarus is dead. I am the resurrection, I am the life, Lazarus is dead. And Martha, being a good Sunday school student, says, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one coming. She got the answer right. But did she really get the meaning right? So Martha leaves. And she runs back to Bethany, and she runs in, and then an interesting thing, she has a conversation with Mary, and did you notice the word, what kind of conversation she has with Mary? How does she have it? Privately. Why does she want to have a, a conversation privately about the fact that Jesus is there? She'd rather walk in the dark than in the light. There are a lot of people around it. And she says to Mary something fascinating. She says, the Lord is calling for you. Now, did you all get that in the verse? Did Jesus say, tell Mary to come here? What is she up to? Well, probably a couple of things going on. One is she still wants Jesus to do something and Mary's teacher's pet. Maybe she'll get a little further. And the other thing is, if she sets Mary up, and Mary, you look stupid, that won't look too bad, will it? But she's already been shown up once. And so Mary goes running off. And, and, and when she gets there, she falls at his feet. And do you remember what she said to him? Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. I mean, Jesus said, is there an, are they giving out bullet points to everybody or what? I mean... <laughs> And it says that Jesus saw the crowd who had come with her. They thought that she was going to him, and they were crying and wailing as they do. And it says that he became deeply agitated in his spirit. Deeply agitated in his spirit. In a little bit it says, and he wept. Why did he weep? Some of the people thought it was because he loved Lazarus. Hmm? Yeah, you couldn't believe these people are supposed to be the people who are his friends. They're the ones that are supposed to be walking. They're the ones who say, yes, Lord, we believe. <laughs> you know, we got it. We're, we're following your way. We got the whole thing. And But if you had only been here, then he left. He knew what he was going to do. He already he knew back before he ever left what he was going to do, so he wasn't weeping for Lazarus. He got that point. What he wept for was that, after all this time and all this teaching and all the things they had seen, the miracles and all, they still wanted to walk in the dark. And so he says, where have you laid him? And so they go to the place where he laid him and he looks over at Martha and says, tell him to roll the stone away. And, and Martha then says to him, I like the King James Version on this one, but Lord, he stinketh. <laughs> it's so much better than there is a stench. I mean, <laughs> he stinketh. He'd been dead for four days, so you know the body was decaying, and, and the smell would have been horrendous. And, you know, 
Like, I really don't think that's a good idea. And he said, did I not tell you? That's where we're really, that was the, that's the hinge of this whole passage. Did I not tell you that you would see the glory of God revealed in front of you? Roll the stone away. Okay. Now, what's amazing about it is that they didn't argue. <laughs> they didn't say anything. They just moved it. And Jesus then prays to the Father in heaven, who he's been talking to all along anyway, but he wants everybody else to know that he's talking to him. And then he looks across the way to where the cave is, and he says, Lazarus, come out! Now, go to a funeral home and try that one. What do you think all these people who, if only you had been here, you would not have died, you were thinking then. He's off his rocker. And if he did come out, he'd stink him. I mean, this isn't a good idea. And suddenly, they hear a noise. And rustling, and they're wondering, what in the world is that? And then, in my mind, they hear, ow! And they well, what's going on? And suddenly, in the doorway, they see somebody... Because when the Jews bury someone, they take their linen and they wrap them tightly in it. You know, not like a mummy where it's individually wrapped, but they put their body beside them and their legs and they go all the way down to the feet. They wrap the feet individually in the hands and the head. But the rest of it is all just wrapped up in the shroud so that the bones will all stay together. Because eventually they'll come, once the flesh is all gone, they'll take the bones and put them in what's called an ossuary and put that away. So, and so... You can sort of imagine what it was like for Lazarus. He's dead, but he's all tied up. I mean, you know, you imagine trying to get up? He didn't use his hands or anything. He's, not only that, but he can't see. There's a hood over his head. And it's dark in a cave. That's where the ouch came from. That's where he ran into something on the way. Where's the door, you know? You know he didn't send anybody in to get him. And so then Jesus does something powerful. It's really even more powerful, I think, than the fact that he raised them from the dead. He turns to the people there and he says, unbind him and let him go. Now, why is that so powerful? Who bound him up so that he couldn't move? They did. They bound him up. Why did they bind him up? He was dead. They believed, all right, they believed in death. They believed it was done. They believed there was no hope. They believed all was lost. The best we can do is reverently care for this body. And so they bound him up. How appropriate is it that those who walk in darkness, you know, are confronted with Jesus helping a man who walks in darkness, real darkness, saying, unbind him and let him go. Let him out. And, and you can almost see the meaning of it that pervades. And it says that and because of that, they believed in him. Because I don't think Jesus was just saying, unbind Lazarus and let him go. I think he was saying to us, unbind yourselves and let yourselves go. Stop believing in 
you know, the, the way of the world, the brokenness of your life. Stop believing that you don't have a choice. Stop believing in the rationalizations that you make for yourself. You know, stop believing in all of those things that are ultimately going to lead you into that tomb. Walk in the light. Believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. The one who's coming into the world. Believe that he can transform everything in your life into his kingdom if you'll surrender it to him. But it's not easy. The first thing you've got to do is let go of the control. And that's the hardest thing to do. It's really hard to let control of our life. We're surrounded by idiots. The thing we forget is that, yes, we're surrounded by idiots, primarily us. We do dumb things. And what's even more true is that everybody else around us does dumb things too. And so we convince ourselves that somehow or other, if I could just control it enough, I could make it better. And as a result, we ignore the sin of our life. We ignore the brokenness. We rationalize it. We put it away. We work hard to overcome it. And then we are, when we aren't able to do that, we sort of go, oh, well, maybe it's not that bad of a sin anyway. Or, or I can't do anything, so what's the point in trying? I mean, we, we surrender and we, we allow ourselves to live in bound-up lives. When the solution is right in front of us. That he is the resurrection and the life. You see, if you really want the solution, you've got to go to Jerusalem. And you've got to keep carrying all of those sins, all of that brokenness, and you have to carry them with Jesus to the cross. And you have to be willing to die to yourself and allow all of those things to be crucified in you and allow his life to come and permeate you and live in you because that's how you live in your life. That's how you see and if you think about it, it really does make sense that that's how we see because if God doesn't see the world for what it really is, aren't we all in trouble? If God doesn't know better what the right things to do are than we do, aren't we really in trouble? Is there any hope? And so the, the answer Walking in the dark is not to try to find a light. It's to let go. It's to surrender. It's to say, Lord, I can't. But you can. And what I can do is let you live in me. What I can do is invite you into my heart, into my life, into my mind, into my thoughts, into my family, into my finances, into my career, into everything that permeates my being. And I can listen. And I can take those risks that you asked me to take, knowing that nothing can separate me from you, not even death. When we do that, we unbind ourselves and we let ourselves go. When we do that, we don't have to be like Martha and trying to manipulate first Jesus and then Mary. We don't have to be the ones who agitate the Lord with our unbelief. We can be the ones who say, I don't understand, but I trust, I believe. Lord, show me the way. And the Psalms say it, I think, in a profound way. It says, step by step, you lead me, and I will follow you. 
You know, that's the thing about the Lord. What we really want to know is, okay, what, what's at the end of the destination? And he's saying, trust me, you don't want to know. What you really want to know is what's that step. Because you can take one step. I found out Thursday that I'm having surgery next month. I've had terrible sinus problems since well, six months or more. And so I went in with chronic sinitis and had a CAT scan. They didn't find any cats. They never find cats in there. Um, and uh, I go to the ENT to find out what's going on. He says, well, I have really good news. I said, oh, what? I'm like, oh, good. Yeah. And he says, you don't have sinitis. Your sinuses are clear. I said, well, then why am I have all these headaches? And what's all this pressure and all? He says, your nose is really screwed up. <laughs> I couldn't help but think about that. that. meant my nose was bent out of joint. But... Um, <laughs> Then he proceeds to tell me, you have a horribly deviated septum. I'm surprised you can breathe at all. I'm like, did I need this today? And he said, the only reason why you can breathe at all is because it's so far to the left that it leaves this huge passageway over here. And on this side, you've got this weird thing called a conchobulosa. That sounds like an insult, don't you think? All it means is that your turbinate has an air pocket in it that makes it swell. And I said, well, is that like cancer? Or danger? No, no, no. You know, a lot of people have them. It's not unusual at all. And I said, oh, good. And he said, so what we need to do is we got to straighten out your septum so that you can breathe through that side of your nose. He said, but there's a problem. I knew there was a problem. The minute he told me he had good news. And he said, the problem is when I straighten it out, you're not going to be able to breathe out the air side of your nose. I said, well, how big is this thing? He said, oh, about five times as big as it ought to be. He said, be kind of like having a, a large pea in your nose. I said, so what are you going to do? <laughs> and he said, he began to explain in detail what he was going to do. And what's interesting is he was going step by step, which is why I'm telling you this. I have to tell you, I didn't care about the step by step. I tried to tell my wife the step by step. She said, don't, you're grossing me out. Um, <laughs> what I wanted to know, and we finally, I finally just broke down and asked. I said, is this going to hurt? And he said, no, not really. And then he said, just feel like somebody punched you in the nose. I thought, that doesn't hurt. <laughs> and so I have to tell you, I am terrified. I've never had surgery. I mean, I don't do surgery. I visit people who have surgery. <laughs> it's easier, trust me. I can be very compassionate for you. And, and while I'm not at all afraid of dying, I'm terrified of pain. And so I, I got home, and I, Judy was upset. I didn't even go tell her. <laughs> I didn't want to talk about it. I wanted it to go away. I kept hoping I'd wake up, you know, and be one of those bad dreams. And I finally decided, well, I can't make this. I can't get there. Because I kept thinking about what was going to be. And I walked out. Uh, the, the thing that really set it all off, thanks be to Satan. I walk out of the, into the lobby. There's this woman sitting there with this huge bandage across her nose with blood all over it, and her eyes are all black and blue. And, and I, I was just like, oh, no. So I went back and asked the doctor. I said, I said am I going to have like, my face all swollen? He goes, oh, no, no, no. We don't, you know, it's not going to be a problem. I said, you're promising me, right? Now, in full disclosure, Ann Baltima, who's in the Sunday school with your little kids, um, told me to go see this guy. 
And, and I told him, I said, Ann Baltimore told me you would not hurt me. He laughed. Um, <laughs> he thought that was kind of funny. How do I do this then? Because I then it's over a month off. I mean, I'm thinking, gee, that means I have a month to worry about it and to contemplate the pain that is coming. And I finally realized that it's just like the lessons, isn't it? I've been trying to manipulate my sinuses for years. I've been trying to find a doctor who would tell me the right answer for years. Apparently, it's been like this all my life. What I'm really going to have to do is first step. So what was the first step this morning? Come to church. I mean, just one step. That's all I got to do. And when I finally go in for the surgery, what do I got to do? I just got to go in the building. Just one step. Because I can do one step. It's when I project beyond that the terror strikes. Of all the things that could go wrong. Of all the ways that it might be terrible. That's what we do in our life. We do it in all kinds of areas. We do it with career, finance, kids. I mean, you name it. What if we decided to let the Lord handle that part down there? And what we'll do is what's in front of us. We'll take the one step. And so in this next week, you've got a choice. Because you're coming up to Jerusalem. You can decide to take all those things that you've been collecting along the way in the wilderness of your own sin and, and leave them in the desert and start all over again after Easter and go back to the same life that you always had. Or you can choose to walk in the light, realizing that, yes, I'm a sinner. I'm a real sinner. I have real hopes. I, I have real willfulness. I have real pride. I have real sin. But the Lord can take it away if I will go with him. That's pretty scary to take up your cross and allow yourself to be crucified with him. It's not so scary if you take one step. I suspect that's how Jesus carried his cross. One step. And he just kept taking one step until he arrived. So we have a choice. Are you willing to take that step? Are you willing to surrender and live in the light? Or would you rather stumble about in the darkness and be tied up like a dead man? Until, in reality, as King James put it, you stinketh. Amen. You have been listening to Come and See by Father Ron Baird. Come and See is a production of St. Andrew's Church in Lewis Center, Ohio. St. Andrews is also available online at www.standrewspolaris.org. Please join us again when we invite you to come and see.